You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Herbert Clark Hoover, 31st President of the United States. He died this morning at his suite in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. It was a heart failure brought on by blood toxins that accompanied internal hemorrhaging. He was 90 years old. At this moment, on this evening, let it be said, twice when there was hunger in the world, he addressed himself to feeding the hungry. And in so doing, he probably saved more lives than any man in history. But even on this night, because it was a huge reality, it must be pointed out that no man in our recent history was more reviled than Hoover. On him fell the blame for the Great Depression of the 1930s. He lived with this fact for decades. It saddened his life. It is a mark of his greatness that it did not end his public service. It was not a thing of shame. It was simply a fact of history. And the origin of it all is understandable in the origins of the man himself. Continuing it on our program tonight, it is my very deep privilege to present to you the former President of the United States, Herbert Hoover. really a great pleasure to have an opportunity to thank you and the many others in the play business for the opportunity they have given to General Clay, Mr. Stassen, myself, and thousands of others who are interested in the crusade for freedom to just have a moment to express our hope of your support and possibly a mighty contribution. I don't need to describe this movement to you. It is an effort to reach the people in 800 million of enslaved nations under communist leaders, and to give to them the idea that we are not bent on war, that we wish to extend our goodwill, to extend to them hope and faith in the future, and even if we cannot accomplish the whole, if we can accomplish a bare might, we will have done something to have alleviated the anxieties of a distraught world. Thank you. I hope you will give us your support. serious genealogist at Firing Line, but it appears that you and I are sixth cousins once removed. Yes. So now people right now at home are trying to adjust their screen because they're trying (laughs) to figure out what what happened here. 
I know. Let me just say, obviously, your branch of the family ended up okay. Ours was, there was probably too much moonshine. So here's what you tweeted when you found out it was Herbert Hoover. (laughs) You said, wow, that's something. The president, who's my cousin, Herbert Hoover, apologies to all who suffered during the Great Depression. I had nothing to do with it. Okay. I will say this, that since I wrote that tweet, I've done a little more research on my my fourth cousin, uh, President Hoover. And what have you learned about Herbert Hoover? I have I've I've learned that he was let's just say he was the maybe the right guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, um, when it because, comes to the Great Depression. For, for, yes, I'm talking about the Great Depression mm-hmm. because because there were so many other things about him. And, and I was talking to you before the show and I, and you really know the history of of our family. The great humanitarian who kept one third of Europe's population alive between 1914 and 1923. Yeah. This is an extraordinary story of somebody who pioneered international humanitarian food relief. Right. Here's my question to you. How come I haven't been invited to any of the reunions? You're really? coming now. You're it's coming like, now. I'm going to I'm going to make all sorts of relatives turn over in their graves. <laughs> yes, it's something at least next Thanksgiving. It should be a very interesting Thanksgiving between us Hoovers. Former President Herbert Hoover died 55 years ago today. His name forever linked to the stock market crash of 1929 and the Great Depression that followed. But as Mo Rocca will tell us, there's a case to be made that the real Herbert Hoover was a far better man than the caricature. In late October 1929, after years of rising to dizzying heights, the stock market collapsed, ushering in one of the longest and most painful chapters in American history. Herbert Hoover had been president for less than a year. Who decides to call it a depression? Hoover, actually. Kenneth White is the author of a biography of Hoover. Before that, they always called them panics. He liked the word depression. I don't think he anticipated that it would be one that would be stuck to him for the rest of his life. We'd like to thank you, Herbert Hoover. And that's no exaggeration. Consider the 1977 Broadway musical Annie, where this correspondent first heard the name Herbert Hoover. A chorus of slum dwellers mockingly thanks the president. Did the musical Annie annoy you? What it did is it it stoked in me this, like, burning dissent. Like, these people don't know the whole story. Margaret Hoover is the host of PBS's Firing Line. Who do you think would play him in the movie? And the great-granddaughter of the 31st president. Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. This man lived 90 years. And he is judged for four of them. And that's a shame, since Hoover's life before entering the White House was quite simply remarkable. He lived here with his older brother, younger sister, and both his parents. Oh boy, what a little house. Yeah, it's two rooms. Talk about a modest background. Hoover, a Quaker, was born in 1874 in the village of West Branch, Iowa. His father died when Herbert was about six, and then his mother died a few years later when he was nine. The orphaned Bert, as he was known, was put on a train and sent 2,000 miles west to live with his uncle's family in Newburgh, Oregon. Their only son was killed in a very tragic hay wagon accident. So Herbert was essentially sent to Oregon to kind of replace the son that his 
uncle and aunt had lost. In some ways, yes, but he definitely had to earn his board here. You think you would have been happy if you were weeding onions all day? Sarah Monroe is the director of the Hoover Minthorn House in Newburgh. Was it an affectionate home? Not particularly. I think it was very strict. Absent the unconditional love of his birth family, Bert threw himself into work, determined to win respect and reward. He had a deep, deep need to prove himself. And he also had an abundance of physical energy and intellectual energy, and it needed outlets. He was accepted into the very first class of Stanford University, where he studied geology, preparation for a career as a mining engineer. Hoover's talent for turning around unproductive mines made him very much in demand the world over. In his early 20s, he's running gold mines in Australia. In his mid-20s, he's off in China. His relentless drive and his willingness to do whatever was necessary paid off. He made several fortunes as early as his 20s and retired at the start of the First World War with about three or four million dollars in assets. Now, if Hoover's obit had been written in 1914, he would have been remembered as a talented engineer turned business magnate. But his response to World War I turned him into something far greater. When the war broke out, 120,000 Americans were stranded in Europe. Herbert Hoover, a private citizen living in London, assembled the ships to get the Americans home. Hoover followed this feat with an even more stunning one. Germany invaded Belgium and cut off its food supply. The U.S., still neutral, was reluctant to get involved. Everyone was arguing they didn't have responsibility to feed the Belgians. Hoover said, I'll feed them, let me through, and pretty much bullied his way through both lines. Hoover himself convinced both the British and Germans to allow delivery of millions of tons of food to the starving Belgians. He was dealing as though he were his own State Department. As he put it, the feeding must go on. Tom Schwartz is director of the Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. How many people did Hoover and the commission end up feeding? Between seven and eight million. And he became known as the Great Humanitarian. I still get emails and letters of people Hoover fed. After the war, Hoover went from saving European lives to modernizing American lives. As Secretary of Commerce under Presidents Harding and Coolidge, Hoover set standards for everything from electric light sockets to milk bottles. Get this, the dairy industry had previously had 42 different sized containers for milk. Hoover's the one who got them to do it by pint, quart, half gallon, and gallon. And he brought order and safety to traffic lights. He standardized it so red men stop, green men go. He did that. He did that. But wait, there's more. Hoover more or less laid the groundwork for the commercial aviation industry. He oversaw the development of what became the Hoover Dam. And as the country's unofficial innovator-in-chief, Hoover was the very first person to appear on a live television broadcast. He's a very modern man. He is, yes, yes. And in his spare time, Hoover and his wife Lou one of the first women in America to earn a degree in geology, translated an ancient mining text from the original Latin. I mean, they're real mining geeks. This was published in 1912. It remains in print today. 
When the great Mississippi flood of 1927 displaced hundreds of thousands, it was a foregone conclusion that Hoover would lead the relief effort. And he rode the resulting wave of adulation to the Republican nomination for president in 1928 and a landslide victory. The greatest landslide in American politics. I have no fears for the future of our country. It is bright with hope. Only eight months later came Black Tuesday. Franklin Delano Roosevelt would sweep Hoover out of office after a single term. The Great Depression lasted twice as long under FDR than it did under Hoover. So why does Hoover get stuck owning the Depression? Because when Roosevelt came in, he labeled it the Hoover Depression, and he never stopped calling it the Hoover Depression throughout the whole of his presidency. It was FDR's successor, Harry Truman, who welcomed Hoover back into public life. And Hoover is enormously grateful for that gesture. In 1962, on Hoover's 88th birthday, his presidential library was dedicated, only feet from the humble dwelling he'd been born in. What more can a man do? Former President Truman delivered remarks. His record in his career, it is unequaled in the history of this country. By the end of his life, he was rather proud of the fact that he was the only living American with a depression named after him. Are you serious? Yes, he could joke about it. But it took him a long time. (laughs) To get there before he could own it. A long time. Hello, I'm Margaret Hoover, great-granddaughter to Herbert Hoover, the 31st President of the United States of America. I am at the Herbert Hoover National Historic Site and Hoover Presidential Library Museum, located in West Branch, Iowa. Great-grandfather wanted this place to be an inspiration to everyone who comes to visit. Please join me on a journey into the past and enjoy a remarkable story about an orphan from a small town in Iowa who grew up to become President of the United States. Great-grandfather was born in this two-room cottage, which was built by his father, Jesse, in 1871. He lived here with his father, mother, Hulda, brother, Theodore, and Sister Mary. This entire home is about the size of a standard living or family room today. It's hard to believe that the Hoovers all shared one bedroom and that their bathroom is outside with no heat or water. They only had this cook stove for heat, which also served as their stove for food, heating water, cleaning up, and, well, just about everything that required heat. My great-grandfather and his brother and sister had many chores including gardening and gathering wood and, of course, getting the water from the well. My great-great-grandfather, Jesse Hoover, also built a blacksmith shop near the cottage. West Branch had about 500 people then, but there was enough business to keep three such shops busy. A blacksmith did a variety of jobs, including shoeing horses, repairing farm machinery, and making tools. These Hoovers were a very devout Quaker family, and they worshipped at this meeting house on Sunday and on Wednesday. The Society of Friends, which they were called, had no paid minister or priest at their meetings, so church members would sit silently, thinking or praying, and any adult who felt moved by the Spirit could share his or her feelings with the others. 
In West Branch, the Quakers contributed to the community's first small school in 1853. Originally, the building was used as a one-room schoolhouse where children of all ages were taught by one teacher. They didn't even have pencils or paper. Students learned the basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic, doing their work on slates. The teacher also was expected to clean the building and to keep the fire stoked in the winter. Jesse Hoover died when my great-grandfather, or Bertie as he was called back then, was only six years old. His mother, Hulda, died only three years later. Family members held a meeting and Theodore, Bertie, and Mary were sent to live with a relative. Little Bertie lived for a time with his aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. Allen Hoover, on a nearby farm. When great-grandfather was 11, he was sent to Oregon to go live with an aunt and uncle. Of course, there were no airplanes or cars, so he traveled all by himself on an immigrant train. I can only guess, but I bet he was very scared, homesick, and especially missed his brother and sister. You know that the relatives who sent him on this unforgettable journey did not realize that this timid orphan would become a successful mining engineer, organizer of food relief operations, secretary of commerce, and the 31st president of the United States. I looked at this man playing solitaire in a moth-eaten sweater who had a hearing aid next to the cards down below. And he didn't talk to me directly. He didn't even, he didn't even say hello to me. I came into the room, and I had, I had to sell him on the idea of doing a show that I didn't know anything about, really, and that I hadn't done before, and that my boss had told me to go there. And uh, I sat down opposite him, and I showed him the three books I'd just bought. I said, Mr. Hoover, I've just read these. And I believe that in order to be president, there has to be some element of greatness in you. He said, I said, frankly, the only thing I know about you is your collar and that you preceded FDR as the presidency. I would like to know more about you. And through this interview that I'll do, whatever, we will determine, we'll know a little bit more about you. And you know what he did? He smiled and he he turned up his hearing aid, and I knew I was in. Everybody else sighed because he was a martinet around. This is a man who never took anything, a payment, a buck. He'd been Secretary of Commerce. He'd been Secretary of, he'd been head of the food program after World War I. And he'd been President of the United States. All he ever took was his chair and a flag. Never took a cent payment from the government. May I ask you this, very frankly? During all these years, did you accept any compensation in connection with your relief work? I've never accepted compensation either for relief or for uh, federal service, except in this sense, that I have at time taken federal salaries and expended them on matters that, uh, outside of my own needs and use. As, uh, I was led to that by an overall question of conviction of my own. And I don't say this in disparagement of men accepting salaries from the government because most of our officials must have them to live. But it happened that uh, I had uh, prospered in my profession at a time when the income tax was only 1%. I was able to save a competence 
and I felt that I owed to my country a debt that was unpayable, and I had no right to ask her to pay me. So that uh, that was the uh, practice right up until the first 30th day of June this year. You may have inversely answered a question that is in my mind, Mr. Hoover, but may I ask at this point, what do you think of the policy of starvation as an instrument of warfare? Well, I, uh, it may be an instrument of warfare. It might conceivably bring war to an earlier end. But starvation leaves a mass of human beings that are a liability to the world for all time, both themselves and their descendants. Your work in Belgium relief, Mr. Hoover, did not end your food relief operation, did it, sir? No. The Belgian uh, relief continued throughout the war, and I continued to conduct it. Uh, when we came into the war, uh, I withdrew the American staff and substituted Dutch inside of Belgium. At that time, the uh, British and French were beginning to find food difficulties, and they began to call on me for advice. And uh, about that time, President Wilson asked me to take over the United States Food Administration. So I became Food Administrator of the United States, continued in that until the time of the armistice in 1918. And then I was asked to go to Europe on behalf of all of the Allied governments to take over the rehabilitation and food supply of some 350 million people in Eastern Europe. That work ended in what year, sir? That, well, I took it up again in Russia in 1923, so you might say I had spent about nine years on that kind of a job. By that time, of course, you were in the President's Cabinet as Secretary yes, of Commerce. I was. Then you also had some relief work left to put on your shoulder as Secretary of Commerce, did you not? Well, that was the Russian problem, and we had one job in, uh, in Mississippi. Yes, sir, that's what I was referring to. Could you tell us something about that? Well, the flood of 1927 was the greatest flood that had ever been known along the Mississippi from Cairo down. And the uh, protections were weak, and they all gave way, and the country for a thousand miles north and south and from 70 to 150 miles wide went under water. So President Coolidge asked me to take over that job. We moved uh, about a million and a half of people out of the low ground and pulled them out of the water and put them in camps on the high ground and looked after them for three months and put them back in their homes again. We lost only three lives in that operation. Three lives. And it, uh, the expense of it was conducted entirely by American charity. We never called on the government for a dime, except that I had the services of the Navy and the uh, Coast Guard. If it shall appear that while I have been, had the honor of the presidency, that I have contributed to the part required from this high office to bring the Republic through the, this dark night, and if in my administration we shall see the break of dawn of the better day, I shall have done my part in the world.
I think that had Hoover not been elected president and not subsequently become known to Americans for his presidency, I think Hoover would have gone down in history as the great humanitarian of his era. What happened here in Belgium in the fall of 1914 and throughout the, the First World War was the feeding of an entire civilian population that otherwise would not have had enough food to live. He set up a gigantic organization by private means. He was a man of economic efficiency. My grandfather was basically a problem solver and very, very good at it. Herbert Hoover was a doer. Good morning. I'm Tom Korologos, U.S. Ambassador uh, to the Kingdom of Belgium. And I want to thank everyone for coming uh, to the museum this morning. We're here to commemorate our project remembering Herbert Hoover and the Commission for Relief in Belgium. When I first came to Belgium, I discovered a lot of Hoover uh, activity. Hoover this, Hoover that, Hoover Street, Hoover Foundation. Hoover squares, uh, Hoover buildings. Hoover library, Hoover bust. It occurred to me that Hoover was one of these major events in the history of my country. Greetings to all the members of our State Department family serving at Embassy Brussels. It is a pleasure to help you launch today's exhibit honoring President Herbert Hoover's leadership of the Commission for Relief in Belgium. Through this exhibit, we recognize the significant role that our 31st president played in building America's friendship with Belgium and we honor his special contribution to the Belgian people. This is his mother, yeah. and that's oh her mother. Oh my. <laughs> Both of them. Both of them. We decided to do the public diplomacy piece on this uh, because it was a, an excellent, long, good story uh, that hadn't been told. In 1914, Belgium is one of the most productive and prosperous countries in the world. The German invasion puts a brutal end to this. Soon, industry and trade begin grinding to a halt, with further negative impact on agriculture. A British naval blockade prevents food imports, while the occupying power refuses to provide for the population. Each Belgian is left to fend for himself. With uh, the German occupation and the British blockade, um, and, and then the general disarray, uh, what with fighting going on, in the very country, uh, immediately problems were very, very serious. Everyone thinks the conflict will be short-lived. Everyone is wrong. The first humanitarian disaster of the 20th century has begun. When population was indeed uh, threatened with starvation, Fraki took the initiative to, to, to get in touch with Mr. Hoover, explaining that the Americans should do something. At that time, the United States was neutral in the war. And indeed, uh, Hoover responded in a very efficient way. He had been the vehicle 
for helping stranded Americans who were moving from Europe, escaping Europe, and trying to, of course, via London, find a way back to the United States. Frank He had come to London representing Belgians anxious to procure food from the outside world, and Hoover was asked to organize an effort to bring food relief through the British blockade, past the German occupation authorities, and have that food delivered to the Belgian population. The CRB, the Commission for Relief of Belgium, was not uh, at that time the United Nations or an official humanitarian uh, agency. No, it was a private initiative, supported by many, many citizens in the United States and also here in Belgium. What we had here was a man who uh, felt deeply about his fellow man and about the uh, concern for starving people that he didn't want to let go without trying to do something about it. One man, Herbert Hoover, joined forces with leading Belgian businessmen to bring food relief to millions in Belgium and northern France. A master of publicity, Hoover appeals to the people of the United States, Great Britain and France. He asks for money to buy food and charter ships. Working without pay and with help from devoted friends, Hoover creates a unique humanitarian entity that one British diplomat called a piratical state organized for benevolence. There's a phrase in the exhibit, it's sort of, uh, words without action are the assassins of idealism. So it's not enough to talk about something or other. You've got to go and take action, do something. The design concept of the exhibition comes from the quotations of Herbert Hoover. You just see first big quotation on big banners. But if you go behind these banners, you see what he did. In juxtaposition to the noble humanitarian work was the, the artwork that was made out of the weapons of war. And here were interesting objects, but made out of bullets and shells. Um, I liked very much the cartoons, uh, because it portrays the sense of humor that the Belgians still had, despite all the hardships uh, that they were subjected to. It's also interesting how people make the best out of war. One of the hallmarks of Hoover Relief was the application of commercial principles to philanthropy. He rallied people who were experienced managers and business people to come and apply those talents to the relief area. This was not uh, a matter of having Sunday afternoon teas and raising a little money and distributing it to a few people. He had to organize very efficiently. So for a lot of people on the outside, this looked like American business. And so for Hoover, he had a lot of work to do publicity-wise in order to get the word out that this was indeed philanthropy and not American business. Fire. My, my keeper here. Yeah. <laughs> uh. 
and the destruction of Leuven was a major horror story of the First World War. It was a, a very old library with very, very old manuscripts. All this was destroyed. There was money left over from the relief project, and Herbert Hoover said, we don't want it back, we want to give it to various universities around Belgium to rebuild their schools. This book is, I believe, the only one that survived the, the First World War fire. Finally, uh, the Americans, together with Belgians, built that marvelous library we have today in Leuven, thanks to the generosity of many, many American universities. Every so often, a stone is engraved with the name of an American college as a symbol of the great contributions of the American people. The Belgian American Education Foundation is a major leftover uh, in terms of activity of the CRB. There are now 3,000 or more students have gone to the United States all as a result of uh, the Belgian American Education Foundation, which was using funds left over from the Committee for Relief of Belgium. One of the most fascinating events that occurred during Hoover Week uh, was a seminar and uh, lectures and uh, discussions by the four famous historians that had come to join us. Never in one room had there been so much Hoover knowledge and wattage in one place. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you all here for this afternoon. Hoover entered even more prominently onto the international stage. He was no longer just the almoner of Belgium. He had become the food regulator for the world. Between 1914, when he began relief work here in Belgium, and 1923, when he completed his relief work in Russia and in the intervening period in many other countries, at least 80 million people received food uh, from from uh, sources that Hoover, at least in part, was responsible for. A little extra food above the meager ration brings a little happiness to a hungry child. Hoover ended up uh, saving many lives and, very importantly, helping to revive the European economy. President Herbert Hoover returns to Washington after a 35,000-mile presidential mission. At the request of President Truman, Mr. Hoover made a worldwide survey of the needs of famine-stricken countries and the ability of other countries to aid them. That example of humanitarian relief administered efficiently on a massive scale became part of the world's memory. Modern NGOs and uh, relief organizations operating not only in America and around the world uh, owe a debt to Herbert Hoover. Hoover was in some ways the inspiration for the establishment of UNICEF uh, after World War II, and in fact the first executive director had been one of Hoover's associates in the CRB in World War I. There is genocide in Darfur right now. There are contemporary problems that are not obviously just like the one the exhibit is about, but still, the exhibits tell a story. And they remind you of your relationship and its depth and its background. I hope this exhibit will remind Belgians and Americans, especially young people, 
today that the United States and Belgium have been friends for a very long time. Thank you very much. I found it fascinating to think that here in the United States, I don't know how many miles away from the heart of Antwerp or Bruges or Brussels, there is an individual who said, I need to help these people. Uh, when I saw the letters and I saw especially these drawings by children sent to American children, I found that very, very touching. It was just more than uh, an exhibit with documents and pieces of paper and also moving letters and objects. It, it was also a, a content of emotion and uh, of gratefulness. One of the most important things you do in diplomacy is what I call gardening. If you plant a garden and you go away for six months and come back, what have you got? Weeds. But a good gardener keeps at it all the time, gets the weeds out when they're small. So this exhibit is its a sort of effort at gardening, and it's a way of people in the United States paying tribute and getting to know people in Belgium and vice versa, and reminding ourselves that we have some very deep values that we share. Well, Mr. Hooper, I want to thank you for this session that you and I have had here together today. There's just one other thing. I wonder if you would be willing to give me something of your philosophy, something of your feeling about your fellow Americans and about your country. Ray, that uh, rather an extensive subject. One time I wrote a passage on the subject, and I think you've got it in that. Both of you give it to me. I don't think I could phrase it as well as uh, I did at that time, do it extemporaneously. Fine. So if you'd like, I don't mind reading it to you. I wish you would, sir. Perhaps without immodesty, I can claim to have had some experience in what the word America means. I've lived in many lands, many kinds of American life. After my early boyhood in an Iowa village, I lived as a ward of a country doctor in Oregon. I lived among those to whom hard work was the price of existence. The opportunities of America opened to me through the public school. They carried me to the professional training in the great American university. I began by working with my own hands for my daily bread. I have tasted the despair of fruitless search for a job. I even know the kindly encouragement of an humble boarding house keeper. I've seen America in contrast with many nations and many races. My profession took me into many foreign lands under many kinds of governments. I've worked uh, in governments of free men, of tyrannies, of socialists, of communists, and I've met with princes and kings and despots and desperados. I've seen the squalor of Asia and the frozen class barriers of Europe. I was not a tourist. I was associated in their working lives and in their problems. 
I had to deal with their social systems and their governments. And outstanding everywhere to these great masses of people, there was a hallowed word, America. To them, it was the hope of their whole world. Every homecoming was for me a reaffirmation of the glory of America. Each time my soul was washed by the relief from grinding poverty of other nations, by the greater kindliness and frankness which comes from the acceptance of equality and the wide open opportunity to all who want a chance. It is more than that. It is a land of self-respect born alone who want a chance. It is more than that. It is a land of self-respect born alone of free men. I have had every honor to which any man could aspire. There is no place on this whole earth except here in America where all of the sons of man can have this chance in life that has come to me. I recount all this in order that in quicker terms I may give my own testimony. The meaning of our word America flows from one pure source. Within the soul of America is freedom of mind and spirit in man. There alone are the open windows through which pours the sunlight of human spirit. Here alone is human dignity not a dream, but an accomplishment. Perhaps it is not perfect, but is more full of in its realization here than any other place in the world. Today, America is in the midst of a frightening moral slump. You are convened here, and not alone, to nominate a president and a vice president, but to declare anew the principles and ideals which must guide our country. Yours is the task to stop this moral retreat, to lead the attack and recapture the meaning of the word America. <laughs> Thus can opportunity and the spiritual future of your children be assured. And thus you will win the gratitude of posterity and the blessing of Almighty God. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.